it's easy to see what the draw would be to commercialize in, in the U.S., but we're also seeing much more commercialization in Europe um, by emerging pharma companies going it alone, which is interesting, right? Because it tends to be a much more challenging market, lower price points, multiple countries and healthcare systems. What do you think is driving this increased confidence and do you expect it to continue? I mean, I think the ecosystem is driving it to make it possible for these companies. They're not as dependent on larger companies acquiring them at a, at a development stage now. I think that's part of it. And that's driven by at least some of the companies having pretty successful exits post-launch. What else can companies, particularly emerging pharmas, be doing to really maximize their potential for a successful first run? There's really a number of different things that have to be, that are all somewhat interrelated. So, you know, we talk about a foundational preparing for launch, kind of a foundational program of work. You've got to understand your patient journey and your customers and patients. You've got to understand, you've got to build a commercial organization, a field team. Uh, you've got to understand where to focus because often as an emerging company, you can't cover everyone. And so it's it's kind of making sure you're, you're spending your effort where it's going to matter most and have the greatest impact. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this edition of the ZS Associates Inside Global Pharma podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Curtis. Today, we're talking about trends and first launches of emerging biopharma companies. Over the past five years, we've seen a significant increase in these companies launching their own products and oftentimes going it alone. While we've seen this most common in the US, we're also starting to see it happen more globally, extending into areas like Europe. And this is particularly common in therapeutic areas like oncology and rare disease, where it's significantly cheaper to commercialize it yourself due to the concentration of the market, high patient need and higher price premium versus more mass market products. In fact, between 2020 and 2021, we crossed a threshold where emerging pharma and smaller pharma companies are expected to launch more $500 million plus products than big pharma. So what does this mean for the next wave of innovation launches and where they're coming from? Well, joining me for today's discussion is my colleague, Ben Holm, leader of the ZS Associates Emerging Pharma Practice. Ben, thank you for joining us today. Could you give us a brief intro? Yeah, great to be with you, Jen. Yeah, sure. Ben Hone, partner with ZS, focusing on our work with emerging and smaller pharma and biotech clients, and a particular expert in uh, helping with first launches. I've worked on several dozen of those. And in recent years, I've been uh, working in the biotech and pharma industry for uh, since the late 1990s. Great. So launch, you mentioned you're, you're very much focused in the emerging pharma space. It's a huge topic, both for established pharma companies and emerging ones. A lot of the thought leadership you have done is really around tracking trends related to first product launches for emerging companies. How are you defining that group and what makes them so interesting to watch? Yeah, so we defined a first launch as a launch either the, for the first time by a company by itself or in conjunction with a co-promote partner. And we've been tracking those since uh, for 2011 through uh, 2021. We've been doing this since 2017, doing this kind of tracking. And we look at it for the U.S. for novel assets for 505B2. We've done, looked at it for Europe. We cut it at it by therapeutic area like oncology or asset type like non-oncology rare disease so yeah it's an area where we've seen a dramatic uptick 
since the earlier part of the last decade, really since 2017, a significant number of companies choosing to commercialize and it. It parallels, frankly, the increased level of activity in the later stage of uh, pipeline development by these companies as well. So you mentioned that, you know, emerging pharma is driving a lot of the innovation and it's also really contributing a significant share of the pharma pipeline. Can you give a bit more view around kind of what's driving that? Yeah, I think the the smaller companies are really driving the, the bulk of the innovation at this point for the industry. I think larger companies would rather acquire the innovation at a later stage when it's more de-risked. And I think we've, you know, and partly because of the ecosystem around funding innovation, and there's just been, frankly, so much uh, innovation in biology and biotechnology that has the potential to dramatically address unmet needs and uh, serve patients that are not currently able to be treated and or, or to treat them better, that we've, we've seen that ecosystem really driving more and more development in these smaller emerging companies. We've seen you know, 16% uh, per year compound average uh, growth in approvals by emerging pharma company for the last five years uh, for FDA approvals. So it's not, not just that development activity it's also taking those assets all the way through approval often. Yeah, which is another interesting trend. We're seeing more and more of these emerging pharma companies choosing to go it alone in commercialization. And I think in 2021, it was actually the highest number of novel first launches with most of them were rare indications and oncology representing the most common therapeutic area. Um, it's easy yeah. to see the draw for these companies to commercialize for themselves, um, but how successful are they? So I think it depends how you define success, but in many cases, they have been very successful for the shareholders of these companies. And in many cases, they've made a significant impact for patients. 2021, we saw 17 novel first launches in the U.S. market. And you know, nine of those were in the oncology and immunomodulators category. And then we've, we've also seen many of these companies that commercialize either solo or with a co-promo partner have been acquired post-commercialization a couple of years later. So larger companies acquiring them after the asset is DRICS, not, not just clinically and regulatory, but also where you know, they can start to see what the slope of that uptake curve is going to look like. It's easy to see what the draw would be to commercialize in, in the U.S., but we're also seeing much more commercialization in Europe um, by emerging pharma companies going it alone, which is interesting, right? Because it tends to be a much more challenging market, lower price points, multiple countries and healthcare systems. What do you think is driving this increased confidence and do you expect it to continue? I mean, I think the ecosystem is driving it to make it possible for these companies. They're not as dependent on larger companies acquiring them at a, at a development stage now. I think that's part of it. And that's driven by at least some of the companies having pretty successful exits post-launch. I think the other factor is just the, the way the science has developed and the focus on, on new treatments has focused more and more on special populations treated by specialists, uh, more on rare diseases. These don't require the same level of scale and investment to commercialize as maybe uh, you know, a mass market product from decades prior might have. So it's feasible to build an organization to commercialize these orphan and specialty products. Uh, and that's, that's helping drive it as well. The feasibility part is an interesting aspect. So just because you, you can do it 
should you do it? And looking back at a lot of these first time launches, you know, the success is mixed. Um, what do you think are some of the, the factors driving that? And how do, you, how do you ensure that you're getting the outcome <laughs> that you're looking for? It's mixed for big pharma too. So it's, I'm not sure that the uh, success is only a big pharma, small pharma difference. You know, we looked at three years of launches and compared their actual performance versus pre-launch expectations. And we looked at 2019, 2020, and 2021. What we found was when we grouped them into three buckets, basically we said, you know, meets expectations, let's call it plus or minus 20% around consensus expectations pre-launch and, and overperformance was more than 20% above and under was less than 20% below. What we found was only four out of 30 novel assets in the U.S. that we looked at as a first launch actually were in that meets expectations category. And of the 26 that remained, we didn't have data on six of them. There are 36 total, but of the 30 we could evaluate, the 26 that were not in the meet expectations uh, category were equally split with, with half of those uh, 13, you know, 13 each overperforming and underperforming. You know, so that does suggest you know, clearly... You know, some of these assets have, have not succeeded to the extent that people thought they would. Often we've seen assets that were less differentiated, didn't clearly address you know, uh, unmet needs in a meaningful way, struggle a bit more. Sometimes pricing and payer coverage can be an issue or a reflection perhaps of uh, the asset not uh, being perceived as having a, delivering a high enough value. In a couple of cases, you know, very complex administrations or barriers to use you know, may have played a factor as well. But usually there's a combination of factors that drive you know, that can be attributed to, to underperformance. And usually a whole number of things have to go well for an asset to overperform. So it's not a simple thing. There isn't a recipe that guarantees success every time, I don't think, or at least there's multiple factors you have to have to deliver success. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think we had looked at a similar kind of launch analysis looking globally and seeing a similar trend in terms of, you know, as likely to overperform versus underperform. So it's not purely an emerging pharma phenomenon. Yeah, it's not just the launch. It's partly, you know, choices that start very early in development and, uh, you know, identifying technologies that have the potential to make an impact and then how they're developed, indications are developed for the level of evidence that's generated choices around pricing, all of that matters. In addition to the, you know, how they're commercialized and launched, which also matters, it's hard sometimes to unbundle the relative impact of each of those. The other thing is that just comparing to expectations on forecasts, you're also also just have to ask the question is, were the forecasts, consensus forecasts sufficiently robust or, or are we just not very good at, at forecasting for these assets? Uh, you know, or is the analyst not very you know, good at that or insufficient level of robustness around the assumptions? in those forecasts perhaps as well. Which is a fair challenge and, and certainly can't definitively say yes or no, but I think it, it's a good way to baseline, right? Because it is a more objective, unbiased view of the asset potential versus say a company that's heavily invested. So yeah. definitely a good kind of guideline to look in question are the right decisions being made to guide strategy and implementation. And so like, to your point, you know, getting launch right is definitely more of, of an art than a, a science. Um, but there are a lot of things that are really table stakes, right? And just need to get done. Um, yep. and, and science is one angle. And you talked about some of the challenges around that limitations that have led to unsuccessful launches. 
but what else can companies, particularly emerging pharmas, be doing to really maximize their potential for a successful first run? There's really a number of different things that have to be, that are all somewhat interrelated. So, you know, we talk about a foundational preparing for launch, kind of a foundational program of work. You've got to understand your patient journey and your customers and patients. You've got to understand, you've got to build a commercial organization, a field team. Uh, you've got to understand where to focus because often as an emerging company, you can't cover everyone. And so it's, it's kind of making sure you're, you're spending your effort where it's going to matter, matter most and have the greatest impact. You've got to get the value and access and reimbursement and pricing choices done, you know, well, that can be a significant barrier. And it's one of the reasons I think we, you know, that, that mentioned in particular is one of the reasons that some companies from the U.S. struggle in Europe and perhaps why we actually see less than half of the novel U.S. first launches actually even launching in Europe at all. You know, 37 out of 83, you know, were launched subsequently, or at least so far have been launched uh, subsequently in Europe which is, you know, interesting to a lot of people that these products aren't launched, you know, routinely or as, as routinely in both the U.S. and Europe. Certainly optimizing and maximizing the value of one of these, though, it would include thinking about the global potential for it and whether that's out-licensing rates for Asia, uh, out-licensing for Europe. Those are all, you know, key choices that are part of realizing the value. Great. So, so many things to consider coming down really to the strategic choices that need to be made up front. Um, any, any final thoughts or reflections on the topic of first launches? Well, I think it's an interesting category because it's, they do provide some useful benchmarks as well, because some data is public for, for the, at least the publicly traded companies, there's quite a bit of performance data available. And a first launch, most of these companies uh, don't have other assets, so they're fairly clean in terms of looking at um, as, an, as as benchmarks. So, how long you know did they take to break even? What was the size of their field team? How much did they spend on SGNA in the year or two before launch and the year or two after launch? Those are all useful metrics to track, and they're not as um, perhaps obscured as they are in the larger companies where they tend to report more at a portfolio level. Uh, and you would have to make assumptions around allocating, you know, for one one asset or another, and that gets pretty um, pretty complex pretty quickly in that regard. So in that sense, they're useful. And I think, um, you know, what we're also seeing is it gives the companies that are developing just this clear alternate set of alternatives. So either going it alone, co-promoting with a larger partner, out licensing or selling the company. And um, we like to say these companies are, you know, often on all of those paths simultaneously, whether they're intending to be or not, you know, options can emerge as they move forward through development towards uh, approval. So will the trend of emerging pharma companies going it alone continue? Well, that remains to be seen. We will definitely be watching them to see how the latest runs of first launches go and what the next wave of companies can learn. If you'd like to read more about our research into first launch trends, you can find it on our website, www.cs.com. Well, that's it for this episode of Inside Global Pharma. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Until next time.